Lord, I do thank you for this morning, for the new year you've given us. I pray that we'd be able to start it off right, Lord, dedicating our life to you and and finding out the purpose that you have for us. As we go through your word this morning, I do pray that you would open our eyes to what it says. And Lord, even though it was written more than 2,000 years ago, the subjects are still relevant and applicable to our lives each day. So we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So, so, if you would open to the book of Micah, chapter 1. Micah is one of 12 minor prophets. It is one of the nine pre-exile prophets, which means before uh, Judah was carried away to Babylon and the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C., these nine prophets spoke. The other three minor prophets are called post-exile or after the return from captivity. Micah itself is seven chapters long. It's 105 verses. Uh, verse 1 states, The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, the vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Micah was a prophet to Judah. He was from a town called Moresheth. Now, he was a contemporary of the prophet Isaiah. They prophesied during the same time frame or parts of it. And while Isaiah prophesied mainly in the city of Jerusalem, Micah was actually uh, in a rural farming town is where he's from, Moresheth. It's 23 miles southwest of Jerusalem. It was very close to the land of the Philistines, close to the city of Gath. It was also 17.5 miles west of the town of Tekoa, where the prophet Amos was from, who had prophesied 50 years earlier. Now, Hosea was his contemporary in the northern kingdom. And as I said, Isaiah in the southern. And Micah himself is quoted twice by other prophets. He's quoted in Jeremiah 26, and he's quoted by Jesus in Matthew chapter 10. He's also quoted as fulfilling prophecy in Matthew chapter 2. Now, he ministers during uh, 739 to 686 B.C., and as I said, during the reigns of Jotham, who was a good king, Ahaz, who was a wicked king, and Hezekiah, who was a good king. Now, for this background, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 1537 that in the days of Jotham, God began to bring the king of Israel and Syria against Judah. And while the king Jotham did do what was right in the sight of the Lord himself, his son Ahaz did not. Ahaz had his children pass through the fire and worship two false gods, and we've described that before. And he sacrificed to these gods, gods in multiple places all over Judah. And you find that in 2 Kings 16.2-4. Further, it's during Ahaz's reign that the king of Rezin of Syria and king Pekah of Israel, they conquer all Judah except for Jerusalem. And they lay siege to Jerusalem. Now it's also around this time that Isaiah confronts Ahaz about placing his trust in God to deliver Judah from these kings. Now, Ahaz rejects Isaiah's counsel, and he chooses instead to pay off the king of Assyria to defeat Syria and Israel. It's during this event, and we've gone through this in the past as well, that Isaiah prophesies about the Messiah's virgin birth, and that story's found in Isaiah 7. Now, thematically, the book of Micah 
talks about the divine retribution against Israel and Judah. But God never leaves us in despair. Because while he has to judge sin, he promises to fulfill his covenant with Israel in the Messiah's future kingdom. Micah can be, Micah can be divided into three sections. Chapters 1 and 2, chapters 3 through 5, and chapters 6 through 7. And we, can, we know this because at the beginning of each section, he begins with the statement, Here. Which in Israel, or sorry, which in Hebrew is the word Shema. So each section he begins with, Israel, you need to hear this. Judah, you need to hear this. He wants to grab their attention. And it's not a, hey, can you, I want to tell you something, kind of hear this. It's a, Israel, you need to hear this. This is important. You need to pay attention. So he's trying to emphasize what's going to come upon them. And each one of these three sections begins with a rebuke of sin of some sort. It announces the judgment, because sin must always be judged, and it closes with a promise of messianic blessing, each one of these. So we begin in verse 2 through 5, and it says, Hear, you peoples, hear all of you, listen earth and all who live in it, that the sovereign Lord may bear witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads on the heights of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart. Like wax before fire, like water rushing down a slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression. Because of the sins of the people of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? So the opening scene is really that of a courtroom. Because what he's saying is, as you know, you could watch Judge Judy or whatever court show is out there. All rise, the Honorable Judge Judy or Wapner or whoever is presiding. So in this court scene, though, we have all rise, the Honorable Judge Yahweh is presiding. But instead of everybody rising, everybody is basically falling down. Because when you're in the presence of God, you feel inadequate. And you are inadequate. Isaiah said... I am a man of unclean lips. Peter, when he realized he was inadequate, said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the creation itself says the mountains melt like wax, like water running into a brook. Everything, everything realizes the glory and the majesty of God and who he is. And so God is addressing all the nations here in this courtroom. And he wants their attention because he's going to witness against his people Israel. And he's going to pronounce the judgment. And just a quick side note here. God always does one of two things. He either shows you how to set the example for the nations, or he makes you an example to the nations. So Israel, he gave them the opportunity to be the example. He wanted them to be the people that everybody looked at and said, okay, that's the nation of God. But Israel, in their early times, always, they always went, no, I like that God better. Molech looks so much more appealing, or Bacchus looks so much more appealing. They were always wavering. So God said, okay, you know what? You're not being the example, so I'm going to have to make you one and show you what happens when I judge. And that's what he's, he's predicting here. Now, Samaria and Jerusalem were the capital cities. There's a th the seat of corruption that characterizes the two nations. The high places mentioned here are where they would put the altars to the idols, 
And Samaria itself was always a wicked city. It was bought by um, Ahab's father, Omri. It was bought by Omri. Uh, it was on a hill. It became a great fortified city. It was a beautiful city. It was virtually impregnable according to man's standards. Um, but it was a strong city, and it had idols all over the city. Now, I mentioned Ahaz in the introduction, and that he went to the king of Assyria and said, I need your help. I'll pay you. He paid him tons of money, tons of gold, silver. Assyria came and basically wiped out Israel and uh, Syria. And so what he does is he goes to visit the king of Assyria, and he says, thank you. He, you know, he's walking around uh, Nineveh, I believe it is. And I'm going to read Second Kings chapter 16. And Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasures of the royal palace and sent it as a gift to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria complied by attacking Damascus and capturing it. He deported its inhabitants to Kir and put Racine to death. Then King Ahaz went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria. He saw an altar in Damascus and went and sent to Uriah the priest a sketch of the altar with detailed plans for its construction. So Uriah the priest built an altar in accordance with all the plans that King Ahaz sent from Damascus and finished it before King Ahaz returned. When the king came back from Damascus and saw the altar, he approached it and presented offerings on it. He offered up his burnt offering and grain offering, poured out his drink offering, and splashed the blood of his fellowship offerings against the altar. As for the bronze altar that stood before the Lord, he brought it from the front of the temple from between the new altar and the temple of the Lord, and put it on the north side of the new altar. King Ahaz then gave these orders to Uriah the priest. On the large new altar, offer the morning burnt offering and the evening grain offering. The king's burnt offering and his grain offering, and the burnt offering of all the people of the land, and their grain offering and their drink offering. Splash against this altar the blood of the burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I will use the bronze altar for seeking guidance. So, he took the altar that God had placed in the temple, specifically for sacrifices. And God was very specific in how he wanted it built. He didn't want it to resemble any of what the nations were doing. But Ahaz, who doesn't seek after the Lord anyway, goes, you know, I don't really like that altar, but I like this altar. So he sets it up in the center, and then he sets God's altar to the side. And that was the blatant corruption of Ahaz. You know, he set these things aside. It became a seat of corruption in Jerusalem. It became wicked. Now, we ourselves are the temple of God now. And for ourselves, we need to make sure that we are keeping ourselves pure. We're going to see a lot of things in this world that attract us, that draw us, that want to pull us away from our dedication to the Lord and being faithful and committed to him. We need to make sure we don't take those things that look pleasing. And there's a lot of things that are fun. They're not sin but they can be made sin. We need to make sure we don't bring those into our life and make it a seat of corruption in our own life that draws us away from the Lord. We need to make sure that that altar in the center is Jesus Christ because he's the one who sacrificed himself on that altar for us. So we need to keep him front and center and not pull all these other things in the front and center and push him to the side like Ahaz did. Verses 6 to 9. Or verse 6, I'm sorry. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. Uh, I googled Samaria on YouTube. There are 
plenty of pictures of the ruins and rubble of Samaria. It is not rebuilt, and there are indeed uh, her foundations shown and rubble in the valley below her. She has not been rebuilt. This prophecy was fulfilled. Uh, It was fulfilled in 722 B.C. when Israel was carried away by Assyria into captivity. And this was begun under the king Sargon II. And what he did was he took the people, he displaced them, most of them, and replaced them by foreigners uh, in that land. Archaeologists have said that Israel went from 300 villages to less than 50, with only 15% of the original population remaining. This remaining population mixed with the foreigners that were brought in and this resulted in the mixed race that's known as Samaritans. And that's where the Samaritans come from. So when you see Samaritans mentioned in the New Testament and why the purebred Jews were so offended by them, it's because they considered them half-breeds. They, weren't, they didn't consider them worthy to be part of the people of Israel. Verse 7. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. So, most false religions, and religions in that day, they had temple prostitutes. So these worshippers would go, they'd pay to sleep with the prostitute as an act of worship. They would take that gold or silver or whatever, and they would take it and they would use it to make a new idol or a new gold pillar to set up or whatever. So those would be set up all over the place. Um, if you've ever seen a picture of uh, a shara, they would have it was. It showed you the the lust that was really in the heart of man because a shara was a woman with between a dozen and two dozen breasts usually, and they would have these all over the city. And so that was the uh, corruption that was there. So what he's saying is, okay, you've done all this stuff. You've built all these pillars up, all these idols. But you know what? I'm going to bring in worshipers who are even worse than you, false worshipers. They're going to take what you've done, and they're going to take it and melt it down, and they're going to worship their gods the same way. So the wages of your worship is going to be the wages of their false worship. You've gotten nowhere. You've ended up nowhere. Verse 8. Because of this, I will weep and howl. I will go barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. All these illustrations, they're signs of mourning. When you see a hellfire and brimstone preacher on the street, and again, not that they're all bad, but there's not always a lot of compassion from them. Micah didn't just announce judgment and go, oh, there's judgment, and then kind of yawn and walk away. He was himself concerned. Uh, A preacher's duty is more than just to announce judgment to the people and walk away. Uh, He has to care. I can give you all the logic in the world as to why God is real. I can give you all the logic in the world as to why evolution is false and why it makes sense and it's reasonable to follow God. But it doesn't matter how much logic I give you if I don't care. I can, you know, knowledge puffs up, Corinthians says, but love is what edifies and builds up. It doesn't matter how big of a head I get or how much knowledge I acquire. And me personally, I like reading. I like reading a lot. 
I have this thing on my Facebook. It's called Vintage News. And it sends things like six to 12 things a day, all this fun information to learn. And I love to learn. And I'm like, oh, don't have time to read that. Save that link. But it doesn't matter how much I learn. If I don't show people that I care what their eternal destination is, then I have become worthless. I haven't been fulfilling my purpose. One commentator did put it this way. Many who have rejected a Christian's logic have been won by his tears. And again, I've, I've, I've probably said this every other time I've taught, but people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So we need to make sure that we have a heart for the lost that yearns for their salvation and not one that's apathetic. Um, a lot of times, you know, we observe non-Christians living for pleasure. And it's fun. <clears throat> Don't get me wrong. God has given us this world to enjoy. And I enjoy it. But that's not my primary purpose. And there's a lot of people who are happy on the outside. But there's a lot of emptiness on the inside that only God can fill. Uh, there was a book out probably 20 years ago. I know I read it in high school. It was called The Prophet. It was by a man named Frank Peretti. And the idea behind the book, and I'm not saying this is possible, but the idea behind the book was this guy who was a Christian, but kind of a nominal Christian, he could feel and hear the emptiness that people had inside. And he was like, I don't know what this is. And finally, after several chapters, he figured out, I can feel, I can hear the emptiness that's inside of people. And honestly, I haven't read it in so long, I forget how it ends. But, uh, it ends in a good way. Uh, but he, he uses that and becomes a greater witness and an evangelist for Christ, basically. Um, but we just need to make sure that we have a heart that's uh, bent on others' salvations and uh, one that cares. Now, verse 9. <clears throat> for Samaria's plague is incurable. It has spread to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Now, Micah recognizes the infectious nature of idolatry upon Judah and its incurability. And really, all sin is a disease. It is infectious. It does need to be warded off with the only medicine that can ward it off, and that's uh, the word. That's Jesus living through us. Now, Samaria's wound is incurable for one reason, and that's really because she's unrepentant. No sin can be cured by an, uh, if a heart is unrepentant. It can, it can only be cured by Jesus. Um, but because she would not take her sin and confess it, uh, it was incurable. Now, again, regarding the infectious nature of sin, there is a 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, evil company corrupts good habits. Now, Satan, he wants to establish a foothold. He wants to establish a beachhead in our life. Now, I you know, most people have uh, seen Saving Private Ryan or maybe The Longest Day um, was the first movie, I think, about the, the Normandy invasion. But we were trying to establish a beachhead in France and trying to get on there, and the Germans were trying to push us back. Well, Satan is bad, and we were good in the other instance, but Satan is the, al- the allies in this picture trying to get on beachhead, and we are trying to beat them back or beat him back. And... Really, we can only do that with the word. And that's the only way that can happen. That's how Jesus did it. And if it worked that way for Jesus, that's really the only way that's going to work. You have to know the scripture. You have to know the word. 
Just as Jesus spent 40 days being tempted by the devil, the devil's going to spend your entire life tempting you and trying to grab a hold and get a beachhead in your life, and we can only fend him off with the word. Verse 10. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Beth Ophrah, roll in the dust. Gath Gath was a Philistine town. Micah doesn't want the enemies of God to realize the destitution of God's people. And in these next uh, six verses, you can't see it in English. But what it is, is there's plays and puns on words in the Hebrew that he uses for each of these towns. Now, he does it in such a way to contradict or play to the name um, to show the judgment that's coming upon them. So I'm going to explain or attempt to explain some of those. So gath means weeping. And essentially think of it this way. There's not going to be any weeping in weep town. Now Beth Oprah means house of dust. Now they should roll in the dust in anticipation of the coming judgment. Now rolling in the dust was a sign of mourning or a sign of um, uh, repentance. But they weren't doing that. So he's saying, look, you need to throw yourself on the ground, and mourn because your judgment is coming. Verse 11, he says, Pass by naked and in shame, you who live in Shafur. Those who live in Zanan will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. It no longer protects you. <coughs> Excuse me. Shafur means beauty. <coughs> Sorry. However, there will be no beauty in beauty town. Because the Syrians are going to Assyrians are going to destroy it and drag off the inhabitants naked and in chains. Their glory and their beauty uh, of that city will be lost. Now Zainan or Zainan means marching or come forth. But there will be no marching out in battle from Marchtown. And though their name does mean come forth. They are not going to come forth to battle. What they're going to do is shut themselves up inside their city until it falls. Now, Beth Ezel means house of standing or house of firmness. It will not be able to stand firm against the Assyrians. There's a couple other translations depending on what root Hebrew word you use. I'm not going to explain the rest. I think this one is the one that is correct. Verse 12. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain of bitterness or live in bitterness, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord even to the gate of Jerusalem. Now, Maroth itself comes from the word Mara, which is where the name Mary comes from, and it means bitterness. And when the army of judgment comes, the citizens of Maroth will know plenty of bitterness. There will be bitterness in bitter town. Now Jerusalem means city of peace. There would be no peace in peace town because disaster is going to be surrounding them on every side. They are completely surrounded. There's nothing they can do. If they look over the walls, they have danger of an arrow being shot through their head. You know, they're they're in a destitute position. Verse 13. You who live in Lachish Harness fast horses to the chariot. 
You are where the sin of daughter Zion, sin of daughter of Zion began, for the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Now Lachish has an origin that means horse. Now this is one of the most defended towns supposedly. It's told to, and it is told to hitch up the fastest horses, but not for battle. They're told to hitch up the fastest horses and just run for it because they're not going to survive the battle. Uh, this is also the city that supposedly introduced idolatry into Judah. It was on the border between Israel and Judah. And it's, uh, that's where idolatry first uh, infected Judah. So verse 14. Therefore you will give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. Now Moresheth Gath, this is where um, Micah is from. It means possession or gift of Gath. And the idea behind it is uh, Moresheth in the Hebrew sounds like the word for betrothed. And here he speaks of giving the city wedding gifts as she passes from the rule of one husband, Judah, to another, which is the invading army of Assyria. Now, Akzib means a lie. And its name will imply that it will prove to be a lie to Israel or a disappointment for Israel's hopes of relief from her. Akzib She's not going to be one of the last hopes of Israel. She's going to fall just like everybody else. Verse 15. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marishah. The nobles of Israel will flee to Adullam. Marishah is related to the word for possessor or heir. The Assyrians are going to be soon the possessors of the city and the heirs of the city. Now, the cave of Adullam is mentioned. In the book of Samuel, David himself, when he was running from King Saul, took refuge in the cave of Adullam, and he was there for months. And he's saying it's going to again be a refuge for the nobles of of Judah. They're going to have to run and hide there because there's not going to be any place that they can escape. Now, verse 16 says, Shave your head in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourself as bald as the vulture they will go from you into exile. In God's law, Israel is always commanded not to cut or shave their heads or their beards like the heathens did, like the pagans did. They were just to let it grow naturally and leave it as it was. But really what God is commanding them here is this. Look, if you're going to live like the pagans, why don't you just mourn for them or mourn like them? You're not even sorry for your sin. And so he's just, you know what? Just Go all the way. You're already acting like them. You might as well mourn like them too. Now, thoughts on chapter 1. As I mentioned, sin and idolatry are infectious. We have to make sure they don't spread. It's easy for things like that to spread unchecked. Uh, I'm a stubborn person, very stubborn. I hate going to the doctor. And usually when my doctor gives me... And my doctor's a Christian. And when we go in, we talk about the Bible and stuff like that. And so... I have no doubt he knows what he's talking about. He's a smart guy, but I'm still stubborn because he'll give me, he'll say, you know what? I really don't think you should do this. I don't want you to do this. And I go, okay. He's like, you're not going to do it, are you? And I said, no, (laughs) Uh, because I'm stubborn. And that's just not me. That's you too. We're all stubborn in some ways. In something, we're stubborn against something. We don't want to, we don't want to yield. We don't want to submit, but we have to be careful about things that can infect. We need to not be stubborn to go, oh, that's not going to affect me. Yeah, 
It is. There are always things that will affect us if we let them into our mind. We can take our thoughts captive. Second thing is, this whole chapter is, is judgment. Judgment is coming. God has to judge sin. A lot of people in this society, and I'm sure everybody here has heard it, God's not going to do that. He's a God of love. Love is one attribute of many. God is God of judgment. He must judge sin. He's righteous. He's holy. He has to do what's right. Micah has ten, uh, number three, Micah has ten different expressions of grief and mourning in this chapter, showing that he does care, as I mentioned. He, he didn't just give the message and walk away. And again, we need to look at our, where our heart is when we preach to the people of the world. And we also need to ask ourselves if we're content to just hand out a tract and think, well, I did my part. When we go to Cambodia, it would be easy for us to go and say, well, we did our part, we did our thing. And not that it's not good to go there and do those things, but it's also important when we come back or to talk to you guys over Facebook or however we're talking to you when we're over there, we give you the information, not so you can go, oh, well, that's really nice of them to do that. And a lot of people do that, and not that they're not being genuine and not that it's wrong, but it needs to be more than, well, that's a good thing to do. And I had somebody at my work go, Eric, I knew you were a Christian. I didn't know you were a minister. I said, all Christians are ministers. All Christians are ministers of God. But it's not just ministering. It's taking that home. It's, it's taking them to heart and praying for their growth and praying that even if those people didn't accept the gospel, the seed was planted. Now the seed needs to grow. And are we praying for the, praying for the growth of that seed? We just need to make certain that if we're unsure of their future destination, that if our heart doesn't ache for that, then there's, there's something missing. Uh, if you ever watched the first season of um, Way of the Master, the very first episode, they quote Spurgeon, I believe it is. And he basically says, if you don't have a heart for the lost, if you don't care for the lost, you can be sure that you're not saved. Love is the premier attribute of the Christian. Now, while chapter 1 covers the sins of God's people against the Lord, chapter 2 is going to cover the sins of God's people against man in general. And we're going to see violence and oppression are the moral reasons for God's judgment in chapter 2. And while idolatry is the reason for God's judgment in chapter 1, once you turn from God, you're going to oppress your fellow man. Now let me read. Oops, I turned the page too soon. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 2. Woe to those who plan iniquity, to those who plot evil on their beds. At morning light they carry it out because it is in their power to do it. They covet fields and seize them, and houses and take them. They defraud the people of their homes. They rob them of their inheritance. Now, have you ever been so excited for a trip that you were leaving on or something fun you were going to do the next day that you couldn't go to sleep? I remember the first time my sister and I went to Disneyland. I don't remember our ages. It was young. We were in elementary school. But I remember that I couldn't go to sleep. I was laying on my bed, and all I could think about was this place I'd never been, but I knew it was going to be fun. And so I was excited to the point where you know, how you, 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 I don't know, you're jittery inside. And I'm laying in bed, and I'm supposed to be going to sleep. 
course, by the time we started driving up there, I think I fell asleep on the way up. But that's the excitement that these wicked people are having. Uh, my wife bought me skydiving a couple of years ago. So I went skydiving, and I, was, I didn't have a problem going to sleep at night. But as I was excited to go, we're going there, and I'm waiting for my turn to get in the plane and jump out of a perfectly good one. And uh, we videoed it and everything, and the guy who's videoing it, he's all, so are you nervous? Are you, are you afraid? And I said, no, I've been looking forward to this. He's all, really? I said, yeah, I said, forever. I've been wanting to do this since high school. And he's all, okay. And I had the pictures on Facebook for a while, but if you look, as I'm jumping out of the plane, I have a huge smile on my face. I'm not worried. I'm not scared. I'm like, oh, I'm jumping to nothing. And I was excited. Now, those are good examples of excitement. But what's happening here is these guys are excited in a bad way. They're not excited because they're doing something for the Lord or there's something fun coming up. They're excited because these are wicked, power-hungry people in Israel who were excited about the evil they were planning. They were looking and going, okay, so-and-so's got this piece of property. I think they're in debt. What can I do? And they're plotting and they're scheming. How can I take this from them? And they're excited about it. They're not looking to help each other. They're looking to steal and take and oppress. And they would scheme all night to do something wrong simply because they could. And because they had the might and the power to do it, they thought it was right. You know, it's that adage that says might makes right. It doesn't really, but that's a popular uh, ideal in the world today. Now, when Israel came into the land, the Lord, ma the Lord had made it clear that even though he was giving them the land, it was still his. Israel was to be the steward of the land God had given them. Uh, it says this in Leviticus 25. Uh, you just read the whole chapter. Uh, Obedience would give them blessing in this land, but disobedience would bring judgment. So they were told ahead of time. They knew exactly what was coming, or they should have known. Now, when everyone received their land, when they first got into it and they conquered it and they started divvying up the land, when they first received their land, there were certain checks and balances in place so that no one could lose their inheritance permanently. For instance, if for some reason I was forced to sell my family's land that had been in the family for hundreds of years, or I had a bad crop failure, or whatever the reason that I was in debt, I could sell the land to pay the debt and live as a servant until what was known as the year of Jubilee. Now, Leviticus 25, 13 to 17, I'm going to read this part. In this year of Jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. Do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since Jubilee. And they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. And when the years are few, you are to decrease the price. Because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. So these rules, were help. These rules helped to keep the rich from oppressing the poor. That's why they were put in place to begin with. The problem was that no one was following the law. They were following the ritual observances. They were following the sacrifices. But in reality, they were unjust and merciless in their dealings with each other. Now, these are what we would call robber barons. They were defrauding their neighbors of the inheritance from the Lord, their lands, their fields, their homes, many times their families, their children were sold. Now, if you recall back to 1 Kings 21, 
King Ahab did this very thing to Naboth the Jezreelite. And Micah may have had this in mind. It had happened before his time, but it's very possible he heard about it. Ahab wanted Naboth's field, but Naboth didn't want to sell. He basically said, why am I going to sell you my inheritance that was given to me? Now, Naboth lives in Israel. Whether he was a true worshiper of God or not, he at least understood that God had at least given him the land, that it was his inheritance. So basically, Ahab sulked about it. Naboth's not going to sell me his land. And he was upset about it, and he was a toddler about it. And his wife Jezebel goes, what's wrong? Naboth's not going to sell me his field, and I really, really want it. Isn't that how every kid sounds? Um, So Jezebel conceives a plan to falsely accuse Naboth so Ahab could have the field. And this is the example of wickedness. And the king set the example. This is the leadership going, well, I want that. I'm going to take it. Or his wife found a way for him to take it. So everybody else sees this. Everybody knows about it. Uh, I believe it was Elijah who pronounced judgment against him for it. So it was well known. So Israel, Israel's king, sets the example so everybody else does it. Judah is infected by it. It's happening in Judah. So sin trickles down. If you don't stop it, it trickles. These robber barons set the example by Ahab were guilty of materialism. Now, materialism results from covetousness and when people are obsessed with acquiring more and more wealth and things. Now, the Bible itself, in many places, Ephesians is one, says covetousness is idolatry. Now, you can look at something and go, that's cool, I want that. I've done that many times. I'm not coveting it, but I go, you know what? If God bless me with that, I could live with that. But their pursuit of materialism was also evidence of how far their hearts were from God in the first place. It's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong to have things. It's not wrong to have fun. God gives us wisdom as to how to deal with or take care of those things if we have them. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, exhort the rich to be you know, generous. Based, I'm paraphrasing. Be generous with their wealth, but to be more, and to be more worried about their wealth in heaven. But we're to, find, we're to find our fulfillment and to spend our time chasing God instead of seeking the things of the earth or the world that drag us away from him. And again, nothing wrong with those things. But it's where they are prioritized in our life. Verse 3. Therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people from which you cannot save yourselves. You will no longer walk proudly, for it will be a time of calamity. If you are going to plan evil against your brethren, I have got some plans of my own against you, which is the captivity. That's really what he's saying. I'm sorry, that last part wasn't scripture. I just added that in. (laughs) God is saying, if you are going to plan evil against your brethren, I have plans against you. That was my paraphrase of it. That's really what it's saying. But... This is kind of what what I was saying earlier. Whenever the rights of God are lightly treated, so whenever people are walking away from God, the rights of man are not going to fare any better than that. Once God is pushed out of the way, the rights of men are going to take over. Now you can see the unjustness in our society today. And 
there's a lot of, usually I get my news on Facebook and then I have to verify it elsewhere. But God has been pushed out of our culture, and there's still a remnant of us here who are like, no, we're not getting rid of him. We're going to stand on God. He's going to be our firm foundation. But there's at least two cases in the last year that I'm aware of where a young athlete raped somebody, and the judge let him off with 30 days probation saying, I don't want to ruin their college experience. I don't want to ruin his future. And that's unjust. Someone who violated the rights of someone else like that, maybe they don't deserve a future. Not that God can't offer grace and forgiveness if they repent of it, but those those two boys aren't repentant. They're sorry they got caught, but they're not repentant of it. And is that kind of injustice, because God has been pushed out of the way, that is in our society? And some people are like, oh, it's okay. Other people are like, well, it's because he's white. No, it's just because there's injustice. It's not because he's white. But these things pervade the culture now that God has been pushed out of it. Verse 4 and 5. In that day, people will ridicule you. They will taunt you with this mournful song. We are utterly ruined. My people's possession is divided up. He takes it from me. He assigns our field to traitors. I'm not sure what tune that's to. It doesn't sound like it rhymes. Verse 5. Therefore, you will have no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by lot. So the land they plotted to take, God is going to take from them and give to their enemies. Everything they lived for, everything they pursued would be taken away. Everything they had sinned to acquire would be stripped from them and given to the enemy. And they would die away from the land that they had coveted. And this is really when you pursue the things of the world apart from God. This is what it gets you. It gets you nothing. There's nothing. He who dies with the most toys still dies with nothing. But you can enjoy the things of the world as long as God is your center and the treasures that you get from serving him and fulfilling the purpose he gives you. And that's, that's really where the true joy is from, fulfilling the purpose that he has for your life. And then he brings you everything else around that, and you get to enjoy it. But it gets you nothing. Verse 6. Do not prophesy, their prophets say. Do not prophesy about these things. Disgrace will not overtake us. So this is the false prophets and the people telling Micah, don't prophesy. If we don't want to, if it's something we don't want to hear, that's what they're saying. We don't want to hear that. We don't like that. It's not a good story. Tell us something that makes us feel good inside. And that's really, you know, in human nature, we want to feel good inside. And so our tendency is to go, ah, that hurts. I don't want to hear that. You know, when you read the Minor Prophets, most people don't want to read the Minor Prophets. There, I mean, there's good stuff in it. You know, it talks about the future kingdom. But you read it and you go, oh, maybe I should do a heart check. Am I, is that where I'm, is that where I'm, my tendencies lie? Is that where I'm leading? You know, no one wants to feel convicted. They were essentially telling Micah. Now, the word prophesy here, one of the root words is Drip like a constant dripping. So they're telling Micah, your prophesying is kind of like a constant dripping. It's bothersome. Don't talk about those things. It's kind of like drivel from your mouth. It's spittle. It's saliva that's just kind of drooling out. And the truth was annoying to them. They didn't like it. They didn't want to hear it. Now, the, the New King James Version translates the word as prattle, prattle, 
which means to chatter or babble in a simple-minded way. This is the way that Judah was viewing Micah's prophecy to them. Now, let me talk about Ahab one more time. In 1 Kings 22, Ahab and Jehoshaphat, who was Ahab king of Israel, Jehoshaphat king of Judah, were talking about going out to battle against somebody. And they were trying to determine whether or not they should go to battle. And Ahab brings in his false prophets and they say, Ah, go forth in battle, you're going to succeed, thus shall it be done to the person who you attack. And he's got like this bull horns and he gores something and says, You're going to win. And Jehoshaphat goes, don't you have a prophet of God that we can ask and not these guys? And Ahab goes, yeah, there is one guy, but I don't like him because he never says anything nice about me. <laughs> and Jehoshaphat says, oh, don't say that. Go ahead and bring him in. So he brings him in, and the prophet's name is Micaiah. Now, they're not the same person, but their name means the same thing. And he goes, okay, Micaiah, should we go out to battle? And he goes, yes, go out, for you're going to succeed. And Ahab says, okay. You've never said anything good, I'm paraphrasing, you've never said anything good about me, and all of a sudden you're saying, I'm going to go out to battle and succeed. He goes, yeah. He goes, I'm going to make you swear to tell the truth. And so Micaiah gives him the vision that God said to say, go ahead and tell him that he's going to go out and succeed in battle because I'm looking for a reason to kill him and judge him, basically. And Ahab said, see, I told you. And he puts him in prison and says, if we don't come back in peace, feed him with bread and water and affliction until he dies. Micaiah goes, well, if that happens, God didn't speak to me. And sure enough, Ahab died in that battle. I'm sure he didn't, Micaiah didn't stay in that prison, but Ahab died in the battle. But, you know, we want to hear things that tickle our ears that sound good. And that's our natural inclination. But if the word of God is in us, we realize, you know what, I need to hear. Even if something's hard to hear, I need to hear it. There's a proverb, I don't remember its exact location, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Second Timothy 3-4 through 4 says, speaking of the last days, the time in which we now live, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine or healthy doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, or ears that want to be tickled with something good, they will heap up for themselves teachers and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, all God's word is relevant to us. Maybe we don't apply the sacrifices or we don't apply certain parts of scripture anymore because Christ is the fulfillment of those scriptures. He foreshadowed them. But they're all relevant because we can all learn something from them. We need to understand where the heart of God is. We need to understand the full picture. And when I first read through the Bible when I was in high school, I understood less than a percent of what I was reading. It took a lot of... Uh, took a lot of reading and study to understand what I understand now, but it was worth it. And, you know, even though Leviticus and parts of Isaiah and Job are hard to get through, when you read through some of those stuff more and more and you understand the background and how Christ was the foreshadowing of some of those things, and it becomes a bigger picture. You understand it. And even if you don't want to always read it, you can at least appreciate God's purpose for that book in the Bible. And we need to make sure that, you know, our opinion of what's relevant is not what's in view, but what God's view is. We need to make sure we're not... I have a tendency when something's boring to me to gloss my eyes over and kind of skim things, or I won't pay attention. 
staff meeting at work. It's not very interesting. I try really hard not to fall asleep. But that's the same thing that we do when we read the Bible, that we're like, ah, well, I have to read the sacrifices of this burnt offering should be done, this, this, and there. Make sure you do it this way. Make sure you take the fatty lobe and do this with it. And you, know, you read all this stuff, and you're like, this is not very inter- interesting, especially since they repeat a lot of it twice. And you're like, I'm not ever sacrificing a bull. So that's probably not relevant. But each one of those things that they mention in those sacrifices, and Pastor Bill's going to get to that after Exodus, it means something. It actually has significance. And you don't see that necessarily the first time you go through it, but it has purpose. Verses 7 through 11. You descendants of Jacob, should it be said, does the Lord become impatient? Does he do such things? Do not my words do good to the one whose ways are upright? Lately my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the rich robe from those who pass by without a care, like men returning from battle. You drive the women of my people from their pleasant homes. You take away my blessing from their children forever. Get up, go away, for this is not your resting place, because it is defiled. It is ruined beyond all remedy." If a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for this people. God's word does, in fact, do good when we act upon it from the heart. And that's what he's saying in verse 7. It does good to the one whose ways are upright when we follow God's word from the heart. John 8.47 says, Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The way we respond to God's word when we hear it when we take it in, indicates our relationship to the Lord. God's word does say wonderful things when we respond, or it does wonderful things when we respond to it. But the people would not respond to it, and instead of doing it, they were robbing people, as we mentioned. And the prophets were blessing them for it. The prophets were saying, we're God's people, nothing bad is going to happen, it's okay, just, you know, do a little less, maybe. Uh, One commentator I read in paraphrasing this, or I'm paraphrasing the commentator, he said, you claim to be God's people, why don't you act like it? So they were claiming to be God's people still, but they weren't acting like it. What Judah and Israel really needed to remember is that God's covenant with them involved precepts, as well as the promises. It It involved commandments and directions that they needed to follow. It also involved obligations that they had as well as the blessings that came from those. They were going through the outward motions, and they were expecting a blessing. But they weren't worshiping God as he desired, which is in spirit and truth. Now, it's interesting in verse 11 when it says, if a liar and a deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy for you plenty of wine and beer, that would be just the prophet for you. And it shows that the real prattlers of the people, the real people who were driveling from their mouths, were the false prophets. And the people ate it up. They loved it. Now, verse 12 12 and 13. I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. So no matter how, much Israel and Judah sinned. They couldn't out-sin God's grace, and no one can. You could be the worst 
sinner in the world who's done everything wrong. And God's going to say, all you've got to do is turn. All you've got to do is repent. You can't outsin his grace. And even though judgment was promised because of everything that they were doing, he still promised to restore them. He promised to restore the remnant, the faithful remnant. Now, this is the first mention of the Messiah here. It says the one who breaks open, or one version says the breaker. This is the Messiah, and this is talking about the future kingdom. He said, look, you're going to be judged now. There's nothing that can stop it because you're unrepentant, but I still have a future for you. So no matter how much we sin, all we have to do is repent. And God has a future for us. He's got a purpose for us. And this is the first mention of the Messiah, but it's not the last. Again, each section, it mentions judgment, but it comes with a promise, and that promise is Messiah. Now, we've ended a year, and I've read a lot of stuff on Facebook where how 2016 abused everybody. And some of it was fairly amusing. Others, there were a lot of uh, famous people who died this year. And it was sad. I'm not saying it wasn't. There's a lot of things that happened this year that, depending on your perspective, were bad. And it didn't seem like a good year. You know, there's a verse that says, without vision, the people perish. Now, God has a vision. He has a purpose for each one of us here. And I don't know what it is for any of you this specific year. But I want you to find out what it is because, according to Habakkuk, we take that vision and we run with it. So whatever vision, whatever purpose God has, find it, run with it. And, you know, this country is headed for judgment like all the others. This country is not in prophecy, despite what people say. And the future of the world, we know what it is. But until that future comes, we've got a job to do. I'm going to close in prayer, and then Dustin is going to come up, and the worship team, and we're going to have communion this morning. Lord, I do thank you for your word. And Lord, a lot of the subject is hard. Sometimes it's difficult to read. But everything you have for us has purpose. Everything has relevance. Lord, let us not let sin and Satan grab a foothold or a beachhead in our life, but let us push it aside. Let us make sure that you are always in the center. That we are always offering ourselves at that living sacrifice on that altar. Lord, give us the vision that you have for us this year. Lord, we don't need to make a resolution. We just need to know your purpose so that we can walk with you. And Lord, give us the strength to do that. We can't do it on our own. We can't walk on our own strength. but we can let you walk through us and live through us. So Lord, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name.